The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. I have to say this morning's passage is something of a relief. Uh, for the last two weeks, I was thinking if I was doing Facebook emojis the last two weeks, it would have been absolute shock. And this morning it's like... You'll understand that when we get to it. We've had two fairly intense episodes over the last two Sundays with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Last week, the events in the cave, which we won't have to repeat. You can go back and look over it if you need to refresh your mind. And now we farewell Lot for the last time and we rejoin Abraham. You may remember Abraham has been living in Hebron. And as we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, he again begins to travel south, not to Egypt, but in the direction of Egypt. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife, She is my sister. That's where the faith palm comes in. There Abimelech, king of Gerah, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them what had happened, they were all very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never have been done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Because, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show me your love, show your love to me everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and uh, cattle, male and female, slaves, and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you, live wherever you like. 
To Pharaoh he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offence against you before all who walk, sorry, all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves, so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all of the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Talk about deja vu. This whole, hey, hey Sarah, just say that you're my sister. We've had this before. It's about 20, 25 years earlier, and Abraham and his entourage had gone down to Egypt. And back then, Abraham said, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, and they will let you live. Say you're my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And now the same thing. In fact, from what we read in the passage today, it seems that Abraham may have actually used this half-truth on a number of occasions. You see, we're told that Abraham says, when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me everywhere we go. Not just in Egypt, not just in Gera, but everywhere we go, say of him, he is my brother. Think about that for a moment. You catch that bit? When God had me wander from my father's household, what happened to that clear call of God to come to and go to a land that I will show you? Now talking to Bimlech, this old, when God had me wander from my father's household. And now it's when God had me wander. And sure, this half-truth, this lie, is intended to save Abraham's life. Obviously, he didn't trust God to do that. But what's it saying to Sarah? This is how you can show your love to me? Seriously? This is Abimelech, king of Gerahs. It's a, it's a Philistine town. It's, it's not the pharaoh of all Egypt. Even in, later on in the land of Canaan, the, the Philistines had a small area. Pharaoh was king of all Egypt. This is only Abimelech, king of Gerah. Is this not the same Abraham who, as we read a few weeks ago, rounded up all of the fighting men in his family, in his household. And he chased four kings the length of Canaan. And he attacked them and he reclaimed Lot and others who had been captured with Lot. And now in this small town in the southern regions, Abraham is scared. And that just say you're my sister. How disrespectful is that to Sarah? He's not telling her to lie. We know everything else that will happen to Sarah after that lie. She is his sister, but yes, she's also his wife. 
and he is prepared to hand her over to save himself. And what is even worse is that now, if not now, in a little while, she will be pregnant with the son of the promise. God has promised Abraham a son. And even now, or in a short time, she will be expecting Isaac. This, this thing that Abraham is doing to save himself puts his, whole, puts his wife and his family on the line. Why would Abraham do such a thing? Abimelech asked the same question, he said to him, and, and Abraham said to him, there is, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Over the last two weeks, we've considered the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's escape to Zor and then to the cave. And more than once, we've reflected on the state of our own communities. Mike, you hinted at it again this morning, the the burden that weighs on the heart of Christian men and women throughout this country and around the world as we look at the state of our, of our world. And I've had plenty of conversations during the week with different people who are concerned about the state of our world, lamenting the declining morality around us. Three weeks ago, Andy unpacked for us this conversation between God and Abraham. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's response said, well, will you sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? And God says, no, for 50 people I'm good. And then he continued, he said, what about 45 and then 40 and 30 and 20 and down to 10? Abraham seemed surprised at just how bad things had got in Sodom and Gomorrah. That God would destroy everything and that he couldn't even find ten righteous people. In fact, as the story unfolded, there was just one righteous man and that was Lon. But now going into Gera, Abraham doesn't go, well, maybe there's 50 righteous people here. Maybe he said, there is no fear of God in this place. I wonder if those negotiations with God and, and remember he came out of his tent after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and he stood there looking to the south and he watched the smoke rising from the land. I wonder if that caused him to despair. Do you ever find yourself in that place? I do. We just get a little overwhelmed by how bad things are. And you go, there is no fear of God in this place. I know many Christians around the world at the moment, I know many Christians I've talked to, who are not only despairing of what they see around them, their only hope they find is that Jesus is coming back soon. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to finish it all off and we're getting out of here. And Jesus could come back tomorrow. He could come back and before I finish my message this morning, when we least expect. We don't know when he's coming back. In fact, we know he is coming back. And Bill's sitting down in the back there. I've got a conversation with him, and I'll have the conversation with Bill. 
because there are some things to happen first. But maybe Jesus is coming back really soon. But I don't think that's the answer that God wants us to have. What I do know is that the things that cause us to despair now, many of those things have been occurring in many places around the world for generations. Throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of the church, in fact, we've been reading that right back as far as Adam and Eve being banned from the Garden of Eden, things went downhill rapidly. Their firstborn murders their second. That's a pretty quick descent from the perfection in the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, as we followed the story through, before the flood, God said that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then God wiped out everyone except those eight people in the ark. And afterwards he said, and every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. It's like, how depressing. And yes, we're told that Jesus is coming back and he will judge the living and the dead. But we're also told that God is patient, doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we, well, we might be saying, Jesus, come back quick. We've had enough. We can't see a way out of this. God sees a way. God has made a way. So rather than look at the world around us with the pessimism of Abraham, let's see what God reveals to Abraham and to us in the story this morning. While Abraham declares that there is no fear of God in this place, God turns up and there is absolutely fear of God in this place. While God has been appearing to Abraham for years in many different ways, he's been turning up, he's been talking to him. We saw a few weeks ago he's standing as one of, the Lord is standing as one of the three visitors talking face to face with Abraham. And yet Abraham, having had all those conversations so clearly with God, still fears Abimelech. But Abimelech sees and hears God in a dream, and everything changes. The message that God brings strikes terror into the heart of Abimelech, and for all who hear what God says to him. Admittedly, God's opening comments are something of an attention getter. Um, you're as good as a dead man. We go. You're as good as as dead because of the woman you. It's like, yeah, that would grab your attention, but just remember, it is a dream, right? Abraham had had all these conversations face to face with God, very clearly hearing God, and he is afraid of Abimelech because obviously God can't save him. And Abimelech, who is the king of this place, in which Abraham fears there is no fear of God has a dream, and he fears God, right in that moment. Abimelech knew that this was more than a dream. God is speaking, and he is speaking truth. God is speaking the truth that Abraham should have spoken. 
Not the half-truth, that she is my sister, but the full truth, that she is my wife. Sometimes we too need to learn to trust God and we need to step out and step up and speak truth. I asked Michael afterwards about Jordan Peterson. Michael was sharing before. The willingness, what was the phrase, Michael, that Jordan Peterson used? Yeah. So someone said to Jordan Peterson, you are courageous. And Jordan Peterson said, I'm not courageous. I am fearful of the right things. I love that. I am fearful of the right things. We need to be willing to speak up. However, we also need to remember that God is more concerned about the truth and about the lost than we are. Although he is the one that sends us out, he is also the one who goes out ahead of us. In the upper room, the night before he's crucified, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, that is the Holy Spirit, but I will go and I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can no longer see me, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Condemned. In the New American Standard Bible, that verse 8 is translated, and when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. How often I have watched Christians standing condemning unbelievers and trying to convince them that they are sinners. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will do that. In fact, Jesus himself said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Jesus doesn't need to condemn the world and we don't need to condemn the world. The Spirit of God brings conviction. As much as those who are in the world would want to deny the truth, while many harden their hearts and dull their ears, most of us have an innate understanding, an innate sense of what is right and wrong, of good and evil. And the Spirit of God is still active in the world. And he still speaks. And at any one time, many are listening, even sometimes those who really don't want to hear, but they still know that prompt. In the parable of the four soils, Jesus spoke about those whose hearts were hardened. He spoke about those whose hearts were shallow. He spoke about those whose hearts were overcrowded. But he also spoke about those and it was one part of the four souls, those whose hearts were now open and ready to receive the word and produce a harvest, 30, 60 and 100 fold. And right now, in this passage, Abimelech is listening and believing and responding. I find it interesting. Here we have Abraham, who's going to become the father of many nations, 
chosen by God and he is basically trying to save his own butt. He's trying to save his own life. Telling his wife to lie about, who she, about their relationship to save his own life. And when Abimelech finds he's as good as a dead man, his response is, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? He's not going, would you kill me? I'm not guilty. He says, would you, would you destroy an innocent nation? He's more concerned about his whole nation and Abraham's concerned about himself. One assumes, of course, that Abimelech is also very aware of recent events in Sodom and Gomorrah and may be rightly concerned for his uh, people. But then he goes on to protest his innocence to God. He says, I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Boy, when I've been in trouble, I wish I could say that. But Abimelech had been clean hands and a clear conscience. Interestingly, God then declares that he had acted. He said, the only reason you've got clean hands and a clear conscience is because I stopped you. God declares that he has acted to stop Abimelech from sinning. Of course, this may have been for Abimelech's benefit, but I believe it was to protect Sarah. And ultimately, to protect Abraham and Isaac. Abraham feared Abimelech. But one of the key lessons here is that God can still act to protect his people. He is still able to protect those who belong to him. This verse, which we quote often, is not just a nice saying. It is an absolute truth. We do know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. Even in this apparently godless place, God was able to protect Sarah. So surely he could have protected Abraham. Abimelech's response was quick, complete and generous. How often we find that those who we would often write off as being without fear of God. You know, you've got those people in your life, or maybe not quite in your life, just across the road, who, man, they are, they've got no fear of God. They're so far from God. Lost, without hope. How often when they encounter God, they respond with such incredible gratitude to God. Now we don't know the ultimate end of Abimelech's story. We'll encounter him again in chapter 21 and again in chapter 26. But the Bible and church history are filled with stories of men and women who are found far from God, often actively opposing God. Men and women who then have a life-changing encounter with God. Many times that encounter comes through the actions of a Jesus follower. However, many times the encounter with a Jesus follower 
comes after an encounter with Jesus. See, God doesn't need us. He chooses to invite us to be part of the journey. I could talk of men like Saul, who later became known as Paul. He was persecuting the church until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it changed his life. And he was led blind into Damascus where he met Ananias who began to disciple him. I could talk of my friend Lorraine Tolini who's now living in Perth. Lorraine turned up one Sunday and I got to listen to the encounter, the miraculous encounter she had had with God. And she had surrendered her life to him. And I got to begin to walk her journey of faith. I could talk about my friend Paul who passed away a couple of years ago in Melbourne and some of the journey that we shared. And he talks about standing on a balcony. And I could probably find the video on YouTube because he's shared it in a few places. Standing on a balcony, going to throw himself off the balcony to end it all. And he says, I can only say that two angels grabbed me twice and pulled me back. God will meet people often before we do and we get to become part of the ongoing journey. I could talk about the countless Muslims around the world who encountered Jesus in dreams. I've got a DVD. In fact, I downloaded the five videos to my laptop during the week so I've got them in an easier format. Five Muslims pursuing a relationship with Allah. At the end of Ramadan is often the case when when Jesus appears to Muslims in dreams and reveals himself and they come to faith. And they go seeking a Jesus follower who can help them on their journey. I'm sure many of you have other stories of people you know who have come to faith and then have encountered a Jesus follower who can lead them on. I'm sure there are many stories. But this I also know, outside of these doors, all across this peninsula and beyond, are broken, lost, hurting people. And whether they will encounter Jesus through you or whether Jesus will bring them to you after he's already encountered them, the important thing is that we are ready to walk with people. That we see we live in an opportunity in a time of hope when everything seems hopeless. When we go there, there's no fear of God in this place. God can and will turn up. He is at work. God is at work wherever we are if we're attentive to his voice, watching for his hand at work, taking the opportunities. God is at work in our communities and in our neighbourhood if we are, and we will see it if we look. We can be like Abraham, so distracted and so concerned for our own survival and that of our family. Or we can focus on that which is most important, the kingdom of God, 
and his righteousness. Because in spite of what Abraham thought about Gerah, there is a fear of God in this place. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And God is at work. And God wants to see this community change. He may come back for us before that. But God says that he doesn't want any to perish. He's at work. He invites us to be part of that journey. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Te Atatū. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.